Bajoran workers, your attention, please. Hello out there in listener land. Hello. You are listening to a very special episode of Swamp Flicks entitled Swamp Trek. As you are probably aware, uh, New Orleans, as well as large parts of the southeast of Louisiana and our country, have been heavily affected by Hurricane Ida. And right now, many of our colleagues down in New Orleans are still without power. Including so, the rest uh, of the Swamp Flicks crew. <laughs> including the rest of the Swamp Flicks crew. So Allie and I, to make sure that you are not deprived of content, are here to deliver the first Possibly only, but definitely first episode of Swamp Track. Swamp Track. <laughs> well, uh, to start us off, before we get started, we did want to remind all of our listeners that we do not currently live in the Federation and the United States local and federal government, although there has been uh, a lot of improvements in the way that FEMA gets things done since Katrina 16 years ago. We still believe that the best way to help our neighbors is not to depend upon the government at this point in time. And if you're making donations, don't give to the Red Cross, the United Way, or the Salvation Army, which are organizations where that money largely stays internal. The best way to help our neighbors is through mutual aid. And we wanted to go ahead and mention that Imagine Waterworks, which is a New Orleans-based nonprofit that is working towards climate justice and disaster readiness, is currently accepting donations at this time, as is the House of Tulip, which is an organization that is specifically reaching out to trans and gender nonconforming people who have been affected by Hurricane Ida. And if you go to uh, Instagram, you can also look up Lanyap Crew, and of course that is Crew spelled k-r-e-w-e and Landgap spelled like the podcast that you're listening to uh that is currently they're currently working to get money out to hospitality workers who are displaced or otherwise unable to work due to hurricane ida and there's also down the bayou which is an organization that's working to do mutual aid for those parts of the state that are outside of new orleans so uh, we'll also be posting some links to those in the uh, comments on this episode. But with that bit of housekeeping done, Allie, what have you been watching? Okay, so I've been watching, um, uh, as we said off mic, most of us have been doing a lot of TV watching, but I did watch a couple of movies. I watched the um, Brian De Palma movie Blowout for the first time. Oh, nice. And I I really enjoyed it. I think it's one of like the most like truly noir neo noir movies I've seen. Um mm-hmm. like I feel like it really sticks with the the aesthetic while also, you know, having an update and letting it be as pulpy and sleazy as, you know, noir should be. Um So, yeah, I really enjoyed that. It was uh funny to me to see like all young John Travolta the whole time. I was like, what happened? And then I had Scientology. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what happened? <laughs> um, yeah, so I watched that. I really enjoyed it. Um, and then I also watched something I did not enjoy as much. The uh, Netflix original anime movie Nino Kuni. Um, which I did not realize was um, basically a direct sequel of 
a video game. <laughs> um, so oh, okay. I don't know if that like made a difference in my enjoyment of it. Probably not. Um, the video game apparently has like a lot of like heavy tie-ins to like Studio Ghibli, and there are a lot of people from Studio Ghibli that worked on it. And this movie boasted like one of the animators from Studio Ghibli as the director, but it's just kind of like a sort of off-brand feeling. <laughs> Um, like the animation's not nearly as good, the story is kind of all over the place, and at times I feel like even problematic. Um, hmm. but uh, yeah, so it's about these two guys, and they're like both in love with the same girl, but then they get sent to this other world, and there's a lot of back and forth, and yeah, it's I don't recommend it, honestly. Unless you're just absolutely so bored, you have nothing else to watch, but there's so many things to watch. I don't, I don't recommend it. Maybe you're invested in the video game, some listener out there, and then in which case, I guess, maybe you'll get something out of it. Um, as for TV I've been watching, I've been continuing my watch through Columbo, of course. Uh, nice. But also um, my watch through Elementary. Um which, you know, I'm still kind of just watching for Lucy Liu, uh, even though Johnny Lee Miller hamming it up occasionally. It just feels like sometimes he's like as obnoxiously British as possible. Um, right. It's great, but it's all about Lucy <laughs> Liu for me. Uh, yeah, and so I also started watching this Netflix original anime show <laughs> called Forest of Piano. And okay. I'm loving it. Um, it's very like <laughs> dramatic, but it's so good to me anyway. It's about these kids who want to be professional concert pianists, and it's all about their journey and like their friendships and them like motivating each other throughout life to, you know, be as good at piano as possible and their different approaches to playing the instruments. It's just very good. Um, it's very, like, heartwarming in, in a lot of ways. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm really enjoying that one. Um, what have you been watching? Well, I have not watched any movies since we spoke last. None at all. Um, all I have been doing is watching the X-Files. Uh, I have nice. now finished season six. Uh, last night we watched the one with a uh, field trip, which is the one with the mushrooms that yes. is Brandon's favorite, as he told us. And unfortunately he's not here to talk to us about I that. I know. It's such uh, a tonight. good one though. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I also really enjoyed the way that they wrapped up the syndicate plot line to yes. not give too much away. I honestly, that two-parter where they kind of like finally took care of that to me was more exciting than the movie. I don't know if that's, um, uh, you've never seen the movie though. I haven't watched the movie. Okay. So I was going to say, I don't know if that, uh, you would feel the same way, but you haven't seen the movie. So I guess there's no way to know, but I have to say the movie, you know, it had a big budget, but all through season six, it's like, it's like in the movie they learned how to do like a car slide so they do that a lot um <laughs> yeah. yeah but they do. i 
I enjoyed season six overall. I can see sort of the criticism that a lot of contemporary viewers had that it became a little too LA based. You know, it did seem like there for the first half of the season, every episode had a like special guest star. It was Brian Cranston yeah. or, you know, Bruce Campbell or whoever it was going to be. It seemed like there was a lot of that early on in the season, but then it, it kind of evened out for me at the end. And I, um, the only one that I really, really hated was one that was apparently very beloved, which was the one about the the writer who oh um, yeah lives in next oh, door to Mulder. Yeah, Ugh. I don't like that one. Did not care for it. Ugh. Did not care for it at all. I mean, that just Could went, barely stay awake through it. It makes my skin crawl. So I guess it's effective he's in that creepy. way. But he's so creepy. He's got major like James Franco vibes in. And I mean that in the worst way, because I do not like James Franco. <laughs> oh, God, Allie, you're being such a non-pillow right now. <laughs> um, no, I agree. Uh, the The way that he, like, you know, Scully behaves out of character. And yes. it's like the, the layers of, like, um, this man character writing what he thinks scully thinks but it's also like a man writing the script about the man about what a woman thinks exactly and it's like wow you it really shows you how much jillian anderson brings to the role yes. in so far as her ability if like that's the way that women are thought about in that writer's room most of the time then she is the saving grace of the show oh yeah uh which i guess we already knew uh not what we're here to talk about. It is not. We're here to talk about some Star Trek. Captain Kirk is climbing a mountain. Why is he climbing a mountain? Captain Kirk is climbing a mountain. Why is he climbing a mountain? Captain Kirk is climbing a mountain. Why is he climbing a mountain? Captain Kirk is climbing a mountain. Why is he climbing a mountain? To hug the mountain. To envelop that mountain with hug the mountain. To envelop that mountain with hug the mountain. That mountain, that mountain. He wants to make love to the mountain. Space. The final frontier. These are the voyages of the Swamp Trek podcast on our one episode journey to explore strange new opinions, seek out new facts, and whatever sorry everyone <laughs> <laughs> i always started out so it's strong right. uh, you had a strong start yeah I did. um i liked it thank you thank <laughs> well you. uh girls in space be wary we are actually recording this coincidentally on star trek day which i didn't realize was a thing you know Woo. um in my house we're reform so we only <laughs> observe captain <laughs> picard day um <laughs> Oh, so, there's a place uh, here that every year did a Picard Day celebration. Oh my god, really? Yeah. Uh, the year I went, there was a Captain Picard portrait done in macaroni art. It was incredible. Fantastic and delicious. So yeah, yeah, Picard Day is worthy of celebration. Well, I will say this is the 55th year anniversary of the original premiere of the first episode of the original Star Trek series. And I actually can trace my own fandom back to the year of the 30th anniversary, which was 1996. There was a big marketing push for Star Trek material at that time. 
you know, Deep Space Nine was still on the air. Voyager was still in its early seasons. Um, First Contact was scheduled to come out that November. And that summer was the summer that I uh, discovered Star Trek and fell in love with it. Uh, So I'm very happy that we are going to be talking about uh, some deep cut Star Trek information tonight. But what about um, your fandom, Allie? When did you first uh, fall down the wormhole? Yeah, I think the caretakers, they dragged me in. Um, Basically, you know, it's kind of been in the background of my life as someone who's never been necessarily like a popular kid and always been friends with, you know, the nerdy kids. Um, But it wasn't really something I actively watched until, you know, I was maybe about 18 and they were playing reruns of next generation on um, the sci-fi channel, like all day. And I would call up my best friend. Uh, We were both in Baton Rouge at the time, but we would still just call each other on the phone instead of getting together and watching them and talk about the episodes that we had just seen. Um, And it was kind of far along in the later seasons when Troy is being like, you know, dragged through aliens and like having space babies and all of that all the troy plots were going on unfortunately because you know she's my one true love i think she is the best at her job out of i wholeheartedly concur star trek wholeheartedly (laughs) so yeah i think that's when it really started um but then i kind of stopped watching it and it's kind of always been there in the darkest places of my life. So I was having a very, very hard time around, I don't know, 2011 and just started watching the original series um, all the way through. And it was, it was great. Um, It was definitely something else to focus on and sort of, you know, latch onto because there's so much to Star Trek and there's so many like aspects and things to learn about and behind the scenes knowledge and you know ever since then it's just kind of continued um so yeah it's been about it's been about 10 years of watching Star Trek um and talking about it with people and arguing about it on the internet you got in on a you got in on a big anniversary here too then I did. You're right. That's it interesting. Was yeah. 45? Yeah, um, 45. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a good time. It, it's, a, it's one of those shows that I feel like everyone has a personal favorite series. Or personal yeah. favorite character or topic. Yeah. Um, for me, I'm a really, really big Deep Space Nine fan. Um, and when we first uh, were talking about this episode, um, you were mentioning, you know, talking about whether or not we'd like to live in the Federation. Um, I think, given our current situation, there's no answer but yes. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but I feel like D Space Nine really goes above and beyond um, 
criticizing like the utopian society and you know bringing up what kind of effort it takes to maintain and who falls through the cracks and you know there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that D Space Nine puts forward to make it less like oh this is a perfect society and we're doing great and it's more of a well, yeah, we're doing great, but also, you know, here's this group of people who's been colonized and we're basically doing very little for them and actively, like, kind of protecting their allies. They're not their allies, they're colonizers. And, you know, here's the Ferengis that we've kind of just, like, brushed off as ridiculous people. And, you know, it's it's a lot of that. Um that I think is just super interesting. And I know a lot of people are not as into Deep Space Nine because it doesn't take place on a spaceship. They're not going anywhere. It's just this one, like, middle-of-nowhere <laughs> space station where there's kooky characters. But I think it's a lot it's a lot deeper than that. And it's a lot more... I feel like, given that they stay in one spot, they get to talk about the challenges in that specific world and it's less going from place to place and more like this is where we are this is how we improve it so i i like i like deep space nine a lot and you know that's not just because it has the first star trek uh gay kiss which was amazing and dax is also maybe my other true love uh, just generally, I love her. All iterations of Dax seem pretty amazing. All iterations of Dax, yeah, I, I get that, I, and I concur. Um, yeah, I, I, my personal favorite Deep Space Nine character is Garrick. I think Garrick is the best. Oh, Garrick um, is is great. Although Garrick is technically like a supporting character among the main cast, it's probably Kira. Oh um, yeah, I love. Kira I've always too. felt that there's. You know, I'm not a person of faith at mm-hmm. all, um, but I do think that the way that uh, a lot of science fiction writing is very dismissive of people of faith is pretty disheartening. Yes, like it's a big, it's a big fucking universe out there. You know, if if we were to, if it were possible for humanity to survive into the 24th century in the way that we see it surviving. In Star Trek, I think that we would probably encounter a lot of people or a lot of species that have faith that is not contradicted by science. You know, they yeah. have faith in something that, that is provable. And yeah, just, I mean, uh, the first couple episodes, the first couple episodes of Deep Space Nine and Voyager, like you meet the caretaker aliens that are literal gods to the mm-hmm. society. Like, you know, there are examples of fate, fate faith oh my gosh in star trek that are tangible and like yeah yeah i've always felt that kira was one of the few very respectful representations of a person of faith in contemporary science fiction um i'll say deep space nine was not my entry point and in fact uh, other than the more recent series and enterprise it was the one that i saw for the first time most recently um, you know, in 1996, it was a lot harder to get a hold of Star Trek than it is now. Yeah. So what I had access to mostly was 
there was a family that my family was friends with that had VHS copies of the movies and WVLA, <laughs> NBC, Channel 33 in Baton Rouge would play uh, episodes of The Next Generation at four o'clock every day after school whenever I was like in nice. fourth and into fifth grade. And then other than that, most of my exposure, at least, you know, prior to, let's say, it was I remember it was 2001 when, uh, well, actually, it was 1999 when the Sci-Fi Channel started showing the episodes of the original series, which I, like, taped and cataloged religiously so that I could review them. And then TNG, after having been replaced by the Ricky Lake show on WVLA in 1998, <laughs> finally came back to uh, syndication like uh, widely whenever it was purchased and shown on the then nascent Spike TV channel, whenever it did its post-TNN rebrand as television for men. Oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. And I remember specifically the legalese of the syndication packet was that they would show, start showing the next generation in 2001. And then as of 2003, they would also put Deep Space Nine into that same circulation. And then in 2005, they would be able to start airing episodes of Voyager. But that 2003 to 2005 period when Deep Space Nine was first being put into syndication on Spike was when I was at boarding school. Oh, yeah, So uh, I, you know, got to re-experience TNG over and over again, recorded all of those episodes, you know, sat there with the pause button ready, right? So that Mm -hmm. I could record it without commercials in real time. Um, Yeah, Which, of course, all seems very silly now because... If you have a streaming service in the United States, you have access to Star Trek, whether it's Amazon Prime or Hulu or Netflix or Paramount Plus, which I do pay for (laughs) whenever there's new Star Trek. And then I immediately cancel because what the hell? Um, Oh, yeah. If you have Uh, any streaming service, you have access to Disco going. Um, I think that this most recent season, the third season, was their best one yet. Nice. Um. They had a bunch of episodes directed by Jonathan Freaks, and that's yes, a man who knows how to direct knows. an episode of Star Trek. Like he does. I re- <laughs> they managed to figure out how to do a holodeck episode in the most yes. ridiculous way possible. Loved it. And they, <laughs> um, my favorite episode of season three was entitled Unification Part Three, um, which if you're a long-term Star Trek fan, as you, you and I are, mm-hmm. you'll remember Unification Parts One and Two from the next generation, which is when Picard and data go to Romulus and meet up with Spock. Yes. And it, it, it brought a genuine, a genuine joy into my body that Michael was able to see in the distant future, the reunified worlds of Romulus and Vulcan. And that even though her brother never lived to see his life work fulfilled, she got to see the end result of what he dedicated his life to. And I thought that that was very beautiful. Yeah. Um, I also really love Lower Decks, uh, which we mentioned. Uh, and I a have few weeks no ago. idea what that was until very recently. Yeah. Have you been, have you checked it out? Or? No. I mean, I, it's on HBO, right? Uh, it's on Paramount Plus. Oh, yeah. Which... I don't have Paramount Plus anymore. Um, 
yeah. Unfortunately, I, because I need to watch through the rest of Discovery, but budget cuts. <laughs> no, I get it. I, you know, I see constantly all of these advertisements, both on TV and online, for like services that tell you how much money you're wasting on bills that you forgot you signed up for. Yes. I sign up for Paramount Plus every time there's new Star Trek and I immediately cancel it after every series finale. And every time they ask me why I'm canceling, I always say, because I will only pay for Star Trek. But I will pay $6 a month for new Star Trek, right? Yeah. But I, I'm i good about remembering to turn that off. And I know that not everybody has the same... Um, attentiveness to detail i put it on my calendar um but yeah i i think that the lack of access to official star trek material made me uh seek out more of the questionably canonical material mm-hmm. which is like the the novels and you know the comics oh yeah and so I, I must have read have not um i've not journeyed that far uh but that doesn't mean i'm not going to (laughs) well and and you didn't get into it when you were a nine-year-old fat kid so like i I get it you're an adult i am an adult adult, human being you know know, i read trash yeah (laughs) i mean a lot of it's good if you if you are looking for a place to start i recommend anything by keith r.a de candido anything by diane duane anything by peter david Peter David is like the nerdiest one. He's the one that really writes um, really fun things that are very rewarding for the fans, as does Greg Cox. Um, those are the ones that I really like. But I think that, like Lower Decks, because the books weren't bound by the same sort of budgetary constraints as the show, the books were able to reflect a much more diverse federation civilian population yeah and by which i mean like you know with a television budget you have to worry about prosthetics and aliens and what Mm -hmm. are they going to look like and you know whereas the books could just be like yeah i'm diane duane i'm writing a book about the enterprise d encountering its mirror universe opposite yes and one of one of the characters is a dolphin like just straight up a dolphin that swims through the air in like a little all the fish yeah so I think that that colored my perception of Starfleet and the Federation yeah. as being more diverse and accepting than what was actually on the show and in the canonical materials, yeah. which is why I think I personally am going to be demonstrating more of a sympathy for the Federation when we get down to our debate topics tonight. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. But I, I'm not going to be including any you know canonical material or non-canonical materials, but... Yeah, those pocketbooks from the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, loved them. Favorite series was um, New Frontier, uh, which I believe was uh, mostly Peter David. But that featured a lot of uh, rewards for long-term fans and Easter eggs and that sort of thing. Um, Deep Space Nine, I did not see until just three years ago. Yeah. Um, when I was laid up after my accident with my leg and I couldn't get out or anything, I, I, I watched all of Deep Space Nine and I absolutely loved it. And I rewatched it along with everything during mm-hmm. the past year and a half of quarantine. And I do mean everything. I oh, watched good. Enterprise for the first time. See, I've not been able to watch Enterprise. Um, 
I don't know. It's just something I get in the middle of that first episode and I just, I stop and it's, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Um, it's just, it's not great. Yeah. Um, I think that more often than it's given credit for, it does rise to the level of good. Yeah, enough. that's, see, I have <laughs> friends who are like big Star Trek fans who are also defenders of Enterprise. And so that's why I keep, I kept trying forever. I was like, maybe they're right. And maybe I should just look up the synopsis for the first couple of episodes and then skip ahead. Like, maybe it gets yeah. better from there, but I don't know. Maybe once they're on a spaceship, it's good, but... One of the things about Enterprise that has to be borne in mind is even the best, the best episode of Enterprise is still pretty middle-of-the-road Star Trek. It's, yeah. you know, there's... there Even when it's at its best, its best episodes are, are as good as, like, oh... Barkley's addicted to the holodeck or Oh my um, god, Barkley. <laughs> yeah, or uh, you know, um <laughs> Deanna gets a psychic impression from a guy who committed suicide in the warp core. Yeah. Right. That's about the level of how much investment you can have in any given episode of Enterprise even when it's at its best. There's not a far beyond the stars. There's not a best of both worlds. There's not a timeless or a dark frontier or a siege of AR358 or a tapestry amongst them. Yeah. None of that. Yeah. Never, never rises to being truly great television, but it manages to be good enough a fair amount of the time. The first two seasons are, are most tolerable. If you think about the show as a workplace drama about an extremely competent woman constantly having to assuage the fragile egos of her male coworkers. Um, <laughs> if you view it through that lens, it's pretty tolerable because to pole who is like a, you know, she's a Vulcan scientist yeah. in like her fifties who looks young, of course, but mm -hmm. you know, who who's on the ship of people who like, you know, she was working before they were born yeah. and they're all just kind of, dumb and naive and i mean um, it's the beginning of the federation right like right so yeah and, yeah uh the third season they really tried to do something different and had like a full season-long story arc which was better and then in the fourth season they really just let a fan run things and that was when it like reached its its highest peaks where they were doing these like three episode mini arcs mm -hmm. um but T'Pol is the best character in the entire show. I'm very disappointed that we have not yet seen her reappear on any of the newer shows because yeah, you as think a Vulcan, she could be yeah, she could be alive during the original period that Discovery was set. But maybe we'll see her in Strange New Worlds, the new Pike show. Although you know, I doubt it because it's not like there's a huge fan outcry for T'Pol outside of um this apartment um, i was gonna say i i'm sure i'm sure you could rally some folks uh yeah I'll, I'll have to watch it just so i can join in the the, the rallying cry maybe we'll get a whole to pull series i you know 
Maybe. I doubt Not, it. Maybe. No. That only happens if you're a male captain. Uh, well, you know, there is the there is the new series that's going to have Janeway in it, the new animated series for children. Are you um, kidding me? There's going to be an animated Janeway for kids? Yeah. It's like a, a an animated show for children, and Kate Mulgrew is somehow involved as Janeway. I don't know. Wild. It kind of seems like it might be like she's based on what I've seen of just like the, the preview release footage. And I don't want to, you know, this is like the worst thing that I could possibly do is like, yeah, I, I, I checked out the preview media for a television show for children. Um, yeah, yeah. but, <laughs> uh, it's like these kids find sort of an abandoned Starfleet ship and Aww. sort of decide to run away aboard it. Yes. And I think, the dream that there might be like a holographic Janeway to guide them All right. is what I'm assuming. I'm into it. So, yeah, right. I'm into I mean, it. You babysit. You'll. you'll, you'll I was going to say have a, you'll have an excuse. Right. Right. <laughs> oh, can't um, wait. But yeah, I guess uh, you started off and and this this was the the big debate i wanted i kind of wanted yeah. to have um because of my sort of lifetime schema of how i view starfleet and the federation as being you know much more diverse and having much more active member worlds than the show simply by the nature of the medium i have a more pro federation point of view and also because I saw Deep Space Nine after everything else, which Deep yeah. Space Nine is really the the one that kind of inspects the price of paradise. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's thing... episodes of uh, Next Gen that do it as well. I did not. Um, I For Next Gen, I did. I looked into another couple of things. But anyway, I didn't... Um, I didn't talk about uh, their like cynicism of the Federation because I do feel like there is the occasional like Picard kind of butting heads, and you know obviously we see that in the Picard series, but right, yeah, it's not as prominent as Deep Space Nine. Well, I think that one of the most wasted pieces of Voyager's Voyager's potential was. The presence of the Maquis, but I also think that you and I have very different uh, opinions about the Maquis. You brought yes. them up at the sort of top of the episode. We do. Because um, I... You, you're kind of pro-Maquis. I am. I am kind of pro-Maquis. And I think it's just the way the Bajoran conflict speaks to me. Um, and the way the Bajorans are treated by the Federation... Um, just generally, like from Ensign Row, like onward, uh, right. we see a lot of like dismissal of the Bajorans and like the Federation. Not even like in the Ensign Row episode, they don't even know how to properly address her, like how her name works. Right. Like it's just to that level that you see the Bajorans treated and like they're living in poverty on these colony planets and just nothing, you know? And 
they get like empty promises and the Federation's like, oh, we'll do this. And, you know, nothing. And they don't have their planet. And it's just like, I feel the Maquis like deep in my soul. Then like these people like reaching out to help these disenfranchised people and empowering them. And, you know, sure, it's a radical act, but, you know, radical violent acts in the hands of like the oppressed is just the it's just I, how okay. pleas for help have been you know ignored I guess my perspective on it is that the conflict between the Maquis and both the Cardassians and the Federation I don't I see that as being there being a much larger gap between that struggle and like what happened to the Bajorans after the Car- during and after the Cardassian occupation, right? Because the mm-hmm. Maquis are not they're not Bajoran colonists; they're Federation colonists. Yes. Um, who for <laughs> for listeners who somehow made it this far and are not aware, um, the Federation and the Cardassians were at war. Um, at some point during the next generation, even though we never see it, it's just kind of brought up and as if we were supposed to have known that that was happening, which mm-hmm. is pretty funny because there are multiple episodes like early on when Gene Roddenberry was more in charge of the show where, you know, Riker will say something like, oh, you know, warfare is a minor uh, province in the role of a starship captain, which is pretty ridiculous when you later find out like they're actually at war at that time. Yeah, that's but, another uh, Federation thing where they will talk about, oh, the ships are for exploration and we're not here for violence, but like they literally send them into areas of conflict um, with armed, with, you know, heavy artillery. Uh, yeah, fair. I. I I guess I have more of like a doylist than a Watsonian perspective about that like one particular thing, but you're right in the sense that like it's it's they have that because that's what creates the story. Because mm-hmm. if you look at those first couple seasons of the Next Generation, there's an awful lot of nothing happening a lot of the time, right? Because they yeah. they encounter so many like voids and like non corporeal entities. Because they had to get around before they just were like, yeah, let's just have enemies that they can shoot the phasers at. There's been a lot of time in the first couple of seasons of TNG just sort of dicking around. I oh, mean, Nagilam Void. Oh, it's Q. Oh, it's, you know, um, I don't Moriarty dislike those in the episodes <laughs> at all. <laughs> I don't dislike those episodes at all. Um, so maybe, maybe that's my problem. <laughs> I, I love those non-corporeal entities. I I don't think that I dislike those early episodes. Well, most of season one is is unwatchable, but I don't it, think that I dislike them as much as other people dislike them. But for me, you know, personally, I I don't see the next generation having run seven seasons and spinning off Deep Space Nine and Voyager and and Enterprise and Picard yeah. without them having more of that sort of conflict that drives some of the later seasons that's absent in those first couple of seasons. Oh yeah, so, definitely. But I I'm always gonna have I think my favorite episodes, you know, are always gonna be the cultural explorations, you know, and Darmok and Jalad and 
like figuring out how to interact with other species rather than right you know there's a war and that is a great episode yeah um as are a lot of them that are about learning to communicate i personally really enjoy (laughs) night terrors which is the one where (laughs) troy is having the nobody the everyone on the ship stops being able to enter rim sleep yes starts to crack and troy is like in her dreams flying around in space being told about hydrogen molecules by another alien race um so i agree i i enjoy those as well especially the ones that that do come later you know we've um but uh i i guess to circle back like we we learned the cardassians and the federation have been at war and this war ended um the cardassians withdrew their occupation from bajor uh leaving behind like a very fractious governmental state um where members of these sort of like anti basically members of the insurgency that drove the cardassians off of bajor are now finding themselves in roles of political power despite having like ptsd from having been like guerrilla terrorists to retake their home world for like all of their lives and i see that conflict as separate and different from starfleet's treaty with the cardassians where you know you have these federation citizens who were like wanted to be far away from the the core worlds right Mm -hmm. for whatever reason and i think that that's because there's always going to be people like that yeah there are always going to be doomsday preppers there are mm-hmm. always going to be people who want a homestead. There are always going to be people who want to live as far away from society as possible because it gives them some sort of joy. Um, I don't personally understand that ethos, but <laughs> I, I, I get that there is that. But what we know about the Maquis is that these were Federation citizens who intentionally went to these worlds on the outskirts of Federation space that were in disputed territory and decided to live there and then when the treaty you know ended up redrawing those lines and the federation was like hey we're here to evac you guys back behind you know the lines of safety that we can provide to you uh there were maquis who were just like nah fam you know we'll just stay and fight the cardassians and it's not like these are ancestral lands no right that's and that's where it gets into it for me because like i don't think of the maki as being freedom fighters to me they're like the bundy ranchers of space so you do see more bajoran involvement as like it goes along and also like it's not like the cardassian involvement on bajor has ended necessarily like the cardassians are still sending people there it's more covert and it's like still you know supported by the cardassian government so yeah i think you see more and more bajorans joining up with them and you know i guess i just find it harder to see them as you know right-wing preppers um i i (laughs) do we see okay i'm trying to remember so Bajorans that we know join up with the Maquis. There's Ro, mm-hmm. which 
I'm assuming that you know this, but if we don't yeah. mention it, you might get people in the replies. You know, yeah. the character of Bolana Torres on Voyager yes. was originally written to be Roe. Oh, I didn't know that. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. And yeah, explains like why I like Bolana because I always liked Roe. Yeah, and it also kind of explains why there are like two or three episodes in the final season of The Next Generation and multiple episodes in like the whatever year that was, like second or third season of Deep Space Nine, setting up the Badlands, setting yeah. up the Maquis, right? Because they were trying to set up this plot line for Voyager. But as we learn on Voyager, the only Bajoran who was involved with Chakotay's like chapter of the Maquis was Seska, who was a Cardassian in disguise. Mm-hmm. So really, do we see any Bajorans other than Ro who really get involved with the Maquis like movement? Um, I think we do. Um... Let me see. I'm, I guess I'm... there's that one. You, you know what? Okay, there is another Bajoran woman. She, uh, she's one of the ones at the end of the first season, Tuvok has like the, the Bolian guy and that other guy and the Bajoran woman that he's like training to do better because they're the ones who aren't fitting in yeah. with the Starfleet crew, um, which is a whole, a whole can of worms unto itself because I don't think that, uh, Tuvok was in the right there, obviously. I mean, you've got people like uh, Torres and Chakotay who, at least at one point, were members of Starfleet. They became sympathetic to the Maquis cause. They withdrew their commission, and then they joined the Maquis. But you've got a bunch of people in the Maquis, including those folks, who never cared about joining Starfleet. I do think it was ridiculous to expect them to adhere to Starfleet code, because what was their alternative? They were just going to ditch them on some desert planet. Yeah. I just think that, uh, I, I'm remembering there being more Bajoran involvement in the Maquis and I'm going to have to, we might have to have a second episode on this because okay, fair I enough. know that I wouldn't just like blindly, you know, side with people who are just like, colonizing in the middle of nowhere although you know these people did build homes and they are federation citizens and suddenly you know right no and they are federation citizens hey move yeah Um, and which kind of sucks i i that's where i think the most moral conflict of the situation is for me because they are federation citizens and but the they understood that where they were going was not part of Federation sovereignty. It was not part of, it was not a a member world of the Federation or under the protectorate of any Federation member world. These were people who just like initially wanted to live on the frontier. And at least in our world, that generally overlaps with some sort of like weird right wingness, right? (laughs) And also like a doomsday prepper nature. And they went out there and they built homes basically because we could uh, not because but it's possible to infer that it was because they didn't care to live among the federation utopia that they wanted something different something they were you know maybe they had like a luddite belief and they wanted to be closer to the soil or something 
but we are talking about people who've been there for like i don't know 10 years and yeah uh, that's I, I understand building a home and a life over the course of 10 years and and not wanting to lose that but being told by your government like hey we're here to get you out of the front lines and we'll resettle you and you can start you know with a new home or we'll give you a home which we know that the federation does and them to say no i'm going to try and stick it out that feels very bundy rancher to me so on the note of people you know colonizing we see it all over like next generation that the federation has colonies everywhere already so uh-huh. i i could see how someone would get the idea of like why do i need the government to make a colony out here but uh also especially because so many of the colonies are federation like legit like starfleet like almost if you were to think of starfleet as sort of a military organization even though i know they will claim that they're not it's up for debate they're basically, you know, military outposts in a way. Like, I know most of them, like I said, are scientific. So if you wanted to have your own colony, like, it seems like it's kind of like, oh, good luck, you know? So, yeah, I can see wanting to have a place to live that's not just some Starfleet colony, if you wanted to I... homestead. I, and I'm just saying this like, a, you know, we're talking about people wanting to live on the fringes and, you know, Starfleet already having colonies and moving people. Like, I'm just saying, like, it's not like there is not a precedent for Starfleet, like, installing people on planets that, you know, technically are in Federation space, but, you know, those were still their own worlds. I don't know. It's it's uh it's an icky issue as far as like colonization and it's another one of those things that the Federation just kind of weirds me out about like so many of these planets that have their own life forms and their own ways of being that suddenly now there's a bunch of colonists living on them and like okay farming their <laughs> I own have to earth planets to that. okay I, have, I, I okay so. I think that we do have to divorce what we understand of like colonialism, like in our world. Yes. From the colonization efforts of the Federation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. We, we like, there aren't indigenous people or life forms living on these planets that the Federation is colonizing. Like we, we actually like, like know that in Wrath of Khan, when the Reliant is out scouting for, dead planets planetoids or moons to test the genesis device on they uh they go down to inspect like manually whenever they get like a life form reading from a dead desert planet mm-hmm. uh which is how Khan reunites with you know Chekhov and takes over the reliant and sets the events of that film into motion that mm-hmm. starfleet and the federation are like careful to the point of absurdity that they they're like oh that could literally just be some plasma in the in the scanner but we're going to go down and make sure that not only is there no life here but there's not even the potential for life to evolve here on like the the scale of the lifetime of the galaxy right yeah it's not columbus coming and giving smallpox blankets 
and plundering resources. Like the Federation is like they, they're developing the Genesis device as a terraforming device specifically so they can go to places where they won't interfere with not like I said, not just life, but the potential for life. And we yeah. see it again in the 24th century in the episode Home Soil where they're digging on that desert planet and come across like the crystal life form. Yeah, the, the crystalline life entity. The, well, it's the one in Home Soil, it's the um, thing that they have in the sick bay and keeps calling everybody ugly bags of mostly water. Oh, yeah. Sorry, there was another colonization <laughs> episode with the crystalline entity. Yeah, the crystalline entity came along and fucked those colonists shit up. Yeah. But <laughs> home soil establishes that Twice. the Federation was like drilling on this planet specifically because it had no life and no potential for life as we know it. Yeah. And even though all of the people working on the terraforming project there are very dedicated to their work, the moment that they realized that there was a life form that was of a kind they could not have conceived of, that they were harming even the most hardcore of these mining people looks physically Oh, this is no-kill eye, right? Um, that's the Horda from the original series. Okay. But yes, same thing there. It's yeah. I, I think that they're kind of parallels of each other. Yeah. Because the Horda is that, you know, rock-based, silicon-based, Yeah, because I, I was going to say it was silicon-based as well there. Yeah. And then in home soil, it's that desert planet where they find the crystal that keeps growing in sick bay and calling everybody bags of water. But <laughs> again, like also in uh, the devil in the dark, the episode with the Horda in the original series, again, mm-hmm. those miners, once they realize that they have actually possibly caused harm, even when they thought that they were just mining on a dead rock are, are very repentant and they're, they look physically ill. Like the idea that they caused harm unintentionally to life that they could not have conceived of existing is like a, a like <laughs> represents like an existential yeah. like problem for them on an emotional and moral level. So I think that we have to like completely divorce our concept of Starfleet colonization from what we consider colonialism and like, because they're not going and taking worlds from anyone. The only time that we do see that um, is an in insurrection where mm-hmm. The where Starfleet has allied itself with the Sona to try and take the Baku world, and specifically that incident makes you know the crew of the Enterprise E rebel against this evil admiral who's overseeing this because it's a violation of all of their most important you know moral and legal codes. Yeah. Um, this is like a total side note because I was thinking about colonizations and like in their way like terraforming sort of way and like the earth and all the earth conflicts that bring us out there um and i've looked it up before and i don't think i really grasped it then um can you tell me about the post-atomic horror you seem like the most uh reasonable person to to ask about this Oh, the post-atomic horror, I think, so, I think that that is supposed to be, like, what, um, was left behind in the wake of the Khan, uh, Oh, eugenicist wars? Yeah, like, once they got rid of them, and then there was, like, Colonel Green, who, um, 
there were a lot of people who had been mutated or radioactive sick. And, and this was like 10 years before first contact where basically there was world war three and it left the earth. So irradiated that it did allow for some sort of like militiamen to try and set up their own little like quasi governments. Mm-hmm. And that really only, uh, came to be like, um, uh, sort of uh, humanity only got past that because of first contact but that's also a largely unexplored part of the of the timeline yeah uh, because and, tasha and yar talks about it yeah so i was like wait a second like anyway like i said it's like one of those things in star trek where you're like oh of course people want new planets like we fucked up Earth, but then, you know, obviously, like, Starfleet's in San Francisco, and we see New Orleans a lot in uh, Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Thanks, Cisco. Uh, in the Cisco family for that. <laughs> uh, also, I love... So, here is the way that I love Star Trek and Star Trek's optimism, is that New Orleans is still a place that exists Yeah, in the future, um, which, you know looking at climate change there's the very real possibility it's just gonna be our our venice like slowly sinking into the gulf um yeah yeah, thank you star trek for giving us hope that new orleans is is gonna be with us in the future (laughs) um but yeah we never find out that it's actually new new orleans new new orleans yeah it's it's inland it's shreveport shreveport oh my god uh, because of an improvement shreveport should be so lucky um (laughs) yeah yeah um no this this is all i i love your uh your explanations on this um oh yeah i'm glad to be of service it's one of the only things that i'm good at um is is this and i'm glad to have uh something to use it for no i love this um i already told you like earlier in the week for fans of the podcast and of swamp trek that this was like the most exciting thing to me is that we were gonna take a whole episode to just talk about star trek Um, while the Brandon's away. Uh. (laughs) Um, so one thing I did want to talk about, especially in terms of like being very into the Federation and Federation science, um, you know, broadly is healthcare. Um, but in a more narrow way, the way disability is handled in the Federation and in Star Trek. Like, the fact that there's all of these people who are welcome and, like, scientists kind of bend over backwards to make adaptive technologies. So cool. It's so cool. I love it. Like, uh, obviously, Jordy's visor is the biggest example of this. Um, And... You know, you have Melora on yeah. Deep Space Nine. Yeah, which I was again, I was just like, about to talk about that too. <laughs> so thank yeah. you. <laughs> I yeah I, I I don't know if you know this, um, 
and again, let's just say it so we don't get any actualies in the mentions, but uh, Melora's um, sort of exoskeleton and uh, sort of like essentially essentially the use of a uh, wheelchair in the future was originally something that was going to be used for Dax. Um, Dax was originally going to be a wheelchair user, but it was unfeasible with the set that they had Mm -hmm. at the time. Which that's unfortunately ironic unfortunately ironic because there is so much like <laughs> our world is full of places that are inaccessible to people in wheelchairs and i guess that includes the operations area of deep space nine yeah but I mean, yeah but and, yeah another way in which the federation rules is like and i mean we've got pike who we've you know already talked about getting his own series but like after he's been through his accident like He's got like a sweet like body preservation setup to get him around and alive and you could only imagine like how just a little bit more in the future how much yeah. more advanced that would have been. Um and you know, you've got doctors like Crusher who's just crushing it in medical care. Like yeah. constantly coming up with ways to solve problems and yeah, I just, I love that. Um, but here's the big but. <laughs> of course, there's got to be a but with me. But right. I think that a lot of, like, mental health care in the Federation, like, I love Deanna, obviously, and I think she's so good at her job. But you would think we'd be further along than just telling Barkley to go date Hollow Deanna. You know, like you'd think we'd be further along than just uh, letting Barkley fret himself into eternity, <laughs> basically. But there's also um, another example of this, other than Barkley. Uh, Barkley. Another example of this is um, in Deep Space Nine, there are the augmented humans that Julian. gets put in charge of and just the fact that because they are inconvenient mentally they've been like institutionalized for basically their whole lives um it just like that whole storyline was like super upsetting because obviously like these are people who like maybe like, it's not supposed to be read this way, but still, like, strike me as being extremely spectrumy. Yeah, um, it's... So. What, what's wrong with them is the result of, like, experimentation upon them. But yeah. in practice, what we see on screen is just them being mostly neurodivergent. Yes, exactly. And, you know, the fact that we've just kind of, like, hidden them away until, like, suddenly oh, we could find a use for you. I don't know. It's just, it's just that whole story arc. Like, and I mean, obviously, like, we have Julian who's been able to, like, slide by um, that, you know, I, he's, like, the one part of Deep Space Nine I have a hard time with is Julian. Like, I find him incredibly annoying. Um and I know this episode was supposed to make him, like, sympathetic, this whole, like, story arc with his being found out to be genetically augmented and then his 
like trying to give back to the community by working with these individuals. Um, but I still find him incredibly obnoxious. Uh, I think it's just how much he creeps on Kira, honestly. Yeah, and and Jadzia, although oh yeah, I, I think that he did demonstrate character growth over time. But I completely understand where you're coming from too. Yeah, but yeah, I I don't know um what you think of like mental health care in the Federation because we do see a good deal of it, you know, and we do yeah. see. Like I said, obviously, love Troy. Um, so yeah, do, it's, you, do you have any thoughts? <laughs> it's strange because, you know, <laughs> again, we're going to get into the ephemera of Star Trek real quick. There's a, there's a fan series called Star Trek Continues oh. that actually has pretty high production values and has had some pretty, like, respectable people involved. They've... Re- they've re- release maybe like six or seven episodes because it's it's fans doing it but you've got james Dewan's actual son playing scotty uh, what? and um uh got the name of the actor sorry let me pull this up real quick uh grant imahara from mythbusters oh wow um, played sulu in multiple episodes they're constantly changing like spocks and mccoys i don't know mm-hmm. what's up with that i don't know the 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 hot goss behind that but taking the opportunity to like sort of make fan episodes that are pretty well made the sets look good their uh special effects are really great for even for like you know not just for a fan production but for any production there's a lot of their visual effects that are really good they're their recreation of that original enterprise looks amazing. And they do rectify that by having a counselor character appear in multiple episodes. Yeah, um, that is like one thing that I'm always just, if I watch Voyager and like, did their counselor like die in this? Is that yes. one of the people that died? Like, yes, that's actually established in the novelization. Oh, okay. I can good. definitively say Thank that you. that actually is established. Okay. Uh, in the novelization, that Voyager was going to have a, a, a counselor on board, and the counselor was one of the people who was killed during the transition through the caretaker's okay. array. Okay. Thank you for that, because the whole time I've been like, why is there just counselor? <laughs> why do we just have Tuvok like teaching people how to meditate? Have you tried meditating? <laughs> yeah. Like, oh my God. You know, they've got America's darling Brad Dourif stuck oh down there. Oh my God, his, that episode. Oh, why didn't uh, I mention that one as well? Oh, that episode yeah. is so good. <laughs> I They gave him one of the best, best, like, character arcs for any, like, recurring minor character on any yes. of the shows. Yes. Whenever he has, like, actually managed to, like, grow and Mm -hmm. become better than what he was before in this confinement and through this meditation and through this therapy from Tuvok, which is uh, insufficient, but what they're working with what they've got. Yeah, they're working with what they got. And he manages to, like, control his violent impulses, but then... In order to save everyone else, he has to give in to those impulses again. I know. That's one of the best, like, narrative through lines of Voyager's early years, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's another show that, like, the first couple of seasons are just rough. Yeah. 
every rough. Every, every Star Trek series that is not the original series, every single one of them, it's like a curse, right? Because yes. the original series, you have these great first two seasons, and then this third the season third that's seasons. a mess. Oh, yeah. God. Every single one of the spinoff series improves in its third season. The Next Generation improves. Uh, Deep Space Nine improves once it becomes, you know, the Dominion's more involved and Cisco the, becomes a captain and the, the Klingons. Klingons get more involved. Yeah. It's the And then Klingons. Voyager improves in season three. I mean, it doesn't really get great until, you know, seven shows up. I was going to say, had massive it doesn't get great until seven. Yeah. Uh, it, and, did, it, does, it does get better, for sure. Especially, like, you know, once you get into the, like, Year of Hell stuff and... After that, after you lose Kess, I feel like you get better. <laughs> yeah, and it's not it's not because of Kess, but they yeah. really did not know what to do with her. They did not. Uh, well, I I do feel like um, there's some mental health that is lacking. I think uh, it, I I think that maybe like. So we, you know, obviously Deanna was brought on as a main character who basically sits at Picard's left hand and gives him advice because it was 1987 and therapy was all the rage in Hollywood, right? If you like track like Hollywood films of that time, you start to see, you know, the race towards something like um, The Color of Night, where like, ooh, therapy's this hot new topic of discussion. You know, it's all of these people... Um, you know, getting Honestly, involved with their mental bring it health. Back. <laughs> yeah, please. Everybody and in this country like, needs therapy, and not like Hannibal. Like, <laughs> we need yeah. we need good therapists on TV. Bring back to yeah. Joy. I I think that um, we never. I, 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 there are a lot of people who hate Esri, right? Yes, there are. I don't. Uh, I don't, I don't get understand. It. Esri's um, a darling. I, 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 Esri's great. I, I guess I get it because Jadzia was such a beloved character and you're introducing this new version of Dax and it's the final season. So you have to spend yes. more episodes than you normally would sort of establishing her character as it, than you would have. It's like, you know, over the course of the first few seasons of Deep Space Nine, you know, we have the trial episode where Jadzia is called upon mm-hmm. to stand trial for something Curzon did. And then we have the episode where all of her previous hosts are personified in her friends. We have the episode where um, Lex Luthor's dad from Smallville, I'm sorry, that's, I I know he's done much more than that, John Glover shows up and he tries to steal the Dax symbiote, right? But you have to compress all of that to establish character for Esri. So I can Mm -hmm. definitely see being a contemporary viewer and finding the density of Esri's storylines frustrating because Mm -hmm. that's not the character that you've already known and loved yeah but the sort of hatred of her i think was was really um over the top vitriolic um yeah i mean i get it i love dax i love dax and morph together i love it my best friend who loves dax hates dax and Worf together i get it though I really like it because I feel like they're both stubborn enough and Dax really like opens his mind on a lot of things. Yeah. There's a And I feel like Worf needed that. They're so different, but yeah. they make sense to me as a couple. I've me seen too. that couple. 
you know yes, <laughs> that's exactly that's that's humorless podcaster boyfriend e-girl scientist girlfriend yes you know in space like it's it's great it's um yeah it's you know would yeah. i rather have dax and kira together yes but <laughs> yeah no i get we, that. we get what we get um yeah we get what we get um I, I guess, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of starting to run a little long, but I, I, to answer your question, I will say, I think that the mental health, uh, <laughs> the way that Starfleet handles mental health could be better. Um, there's, there's like this huge spectrum of like mental health, uh, uh, healthiness or mental health, like uh, awareness that you got where you've, you know, your employer's like, oh, we're not going to give you better benefits, but we'll like <laughs> set up yeah. like, yoga classes for you, right? The, right? They're not doing that. They're doing much better than that. They um, are. You have not yet watched Lower Decks, but there's I a counselor not. character on Lower Decks who is oh, good. Uh, involved multiple times. Um, I like this. Are, yeah. I like that the Admiral on uh, Discovery was a counselor. Yes, I love that because, you know, we never really see... As you don't see the soft a, sciences like rising yes. to that level. One hundred percent. Other than Picard being like a historian, I guess is he? He's more of an anthropologist or like archaeologist. Yeah, but that was guy, a passion. Still, he was always in the command yeah. track. But yeah, yeah. Yes, but I loved her. I and, think that you have made a yeah. valid point about Starfleet's mishandling of the mental health of its. Uh, members and the Federation at large because, yeah, Barkley does kind of fall through the cracks. Although, you know, Deanna, Deanna really, tries her really goes above and beyond as, she really does. as his, has his counselor and therapist where she's like, well, I guess I will cancel my vacation mm-hmm. um, and come help you out. The, <laughs> you episode where, the episode where he late contacts Voyager, though. Is like one of yeah. those like, well, I guess in some ways your mental health problems have benefited someone because he just yeah. gets obsessed with Voyager. Um, Here's a harrowing trivia fact. Yeah. Barkley is in more episodes of Voyager than he is of TNG. Which I makes did him know t- that one. Yes. It's like, wow, okay, I guess he's more of a Voyager character than a Next he Generation is. character. And he's more likable in Voyager, honestly. But was there anything else that we didn't cover that you wanted to cover in this, our inaugural oh, episode? And of our Trek? inaugural episode <laughs> that we're going to say is not our last. Um, you know, there's always going to be more things to cover in uh, yeah. Swamp Trek. Like, that's just the way it is. And I know that you and Brandon have already uh, watched a lot of the movies, but. I should probably get on that, so maybe maybe I'll I'll need to do that for uh our next one. Maybe we'll have to like make Brandon sit in the background while we <laughs> we'll figure talk out. the pros and cons of different ha- spaceships. <laughs> we have a lot to talk about. Does do. all cops are bastards include Odo? Yes. Uh, does it include Tovok? Are all Vulcans cops? Yes. Um uh, 100% Odo is a bastard. Yeah, I know. But 
<laughs> I guess I, we'll have to save that for another time. I but will like, say not even given... like in a cop way, but also like in his like race sort of way. <laughs> oh my god, Allie. You're going to close us on, on a bomb? Uh, on that, Odo being <laughs> a that, bastard? That, that Odo is a bastard because of his race? Oh my no, god. No, because he's like <laughs> left behind and like has no parents. Right. Fair enough. Oh, oh, I get it. Okay. Yeah, he's literally uh, a bastard because he's, he's literally a bastard and he's it. a cop. And he's a cop. Um, yeah. Okay. No, I guess I can't, uh, if, <laughs> I can't object to that. To that. Yeah. Sorry. No, no. Odo's, <laughs> it's not his grace that defines him. Um, it's just that he was separated from them. Well, uh-huh. I will say I don't feel any differently about the Maquis than I did when we started I, this yeah, conversation, I, but you have opened my eyes about yeah. the gaps in the healthcare system of the Federation. Oh, I'm so glad because that is like one of those things. Like I said, the episode with Julian and the augmented people, like, oh, that like hit me deep in my soul. Uh, It's like the only Julian episode that I was like, well, besides any of his, like, times with Garrick, because, I mean, like, they are a couple. Right. Uh, have you seen Have you seen what we leave behind, or what we left behind? The no, but Space I do Nine know documentary? That, okay. that was the intent. Yeah. And yeah. it's, uh, yeah. Andrew Robinson, uh, who coincidentally was just in the Alpha, uh, episode Alpha of the X-Files that I just watched this week. Um, where I was like, there, that's Garrick. Um, <laughs> you know, in his interview and in what we left behind, he does, uh, mention that he played the character from the start as he just wanted to fuck this space twink and that eventually yeah. it evolved into more than that. And I mean, just that his character is canonically like in a relationship with another Cardassian man. Like, right. Uh, that's the other thing I love about Geek Space Nine is it's gay as hell. It is. Uh, it's the gayest one until Discovery. Yes, it is the gayest one until Discovery. Uh, and I also love Discovery for being super gay. So Love it. That's why I, I need to watch more of it. But Well, until next time, <laughs> gentle reader. Or gentle yes. listener. Uh, Until next time. For if you like this, let trick. us know. <laughs> swamp trick. If you like <laughs> this, let us know. And maybe we can convince Brandon to let us do this more often. I have so many things I want to talk about. And we talked if about Brandon Odo, doesn't want to let us do this more often, just uh, push us to do this on our own. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Yeah, I, I I want to talk about how Keiko O'Brien is great, despite what the internet uh, thinks. Keiko O'Brien is great, and O'Brien is the problem. Oh, I wouldn't necessarily say O'Brien is the problem. I think that he's uh, often not great, but yeah. personally, I do not understand the haterade that the internet has for Keiko. I think she's lovely. She is. But uh, yeah, uh, yeah, shout out to Rosalind Chow. Um, and from me, I will say, uh, live long and prosper. Uh, yeah, peace and long life. Bye. <laughs>